Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Art of Money podcast, where I share honest conversations about how money influences our personal experiences, beliefs, and relationships, infusing this taboo subject with a loving dose of dark chocolate and inspiring encouragement. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, which is my flagship program, year-long money school, and global community. Integrating money healing, money practices, and money maps, The Art of Money is my holistic framework, blending therapeutic, body-based practices with the real-life tools you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your relationship with money. So you can say goodbye to that dusty old budget and hello to healing your money life. Learn more on my website, barrytesler.com. For now, grab something to sip on, get comfy, and tune in to today's episode of the Art of Money podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new Art of Money interview. And today I have the honor and pleasure to interview Iris Brilliant, who I get to look at right now through the screen. And I'm going to share her bio a little bit so you can get a sense of her and her work in the world and who she is. So Iris Brilliant is a money coach based in Berkeley, California, but she just moved to Minneapolis. Correct. <laughs> and her life mission is to support people with wealth to move money to social justice and to transform how we relate to money, family, and community along the way. Iris first became passionate about moving money to support social justice when she unexpectedly inherited wealth at the age of 22. Already an activist involved in anti-racist and feminist organizing, she felt unable to reconcile her political values with owning stocks and guns, oil and tobacco, and after some soul searching, she joined staff at Resource Generation, a national community of young adults with wealth committed to social justice, to build community with others who could relate to her experience and to learn how to move money to social justice. As a national organizer at Resource Generation, Iris specialized in working with high net wealth individuals and people with family foundations and she developed skills to mentor young people with wealth and help them organize family members, navigate challenging conversations about money, and fund social justice organizations. While at RG, which is Resource Generation, she helped move over 10 million to social justice movements. In 2018, Iris started her own business to make more impactful one-on-one -on -one change for individuals with wealth. She is a certified professional coactive coach. I know that via the Coactive Training Institute. Iris also works as a donor advisor for Movement Voter Project, where she advises donors on their political giving towards the 2020 election. Yeah, and now the 2022. Okay, exactly. I'm already <laughs> yeah. jumping ahead. It's a little good. updating. <laughs> Excellent. And to complete, she has helped raise over 4.5 million to grassroots organizations working in swing states. Iris also worked as a social justice strategist at Robichaudi and Philipson, which is a wealth management firm to develop new social justice screens 
in the public equity market and help investors divest from destructive industries. Outside of work, she is a singer, guitarist in a jazz funk band and an avid sci-fi reader and an amateur boxer. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. I, I had to read all of that because it was so good <laughs> with the ending as well. Yeah. Hmm. And you were the one to introduce me to Rachel. That's true. Robichaudi. Am I saying that right? Robichaudi? Yep. Rachel Robichaudi. At now Adesina Social Capital. Yes. The founder yeah. of Social Justice Investing. And you yeah. were the one to make that connection. And yep. I had a great interview quite a few years back now. Yeah. So I'm excited to have you featured here. And I'd love you to share anything you would like about your money story and how it's led to the work you're doing in the world and your experience with all of it. I know that's a mouthful. So that is, well, um, I'll, yeah, I'll share my money story and please chime in if there's anything else you'd like to know. Um, and thank you again for having me. Um, so my money story is that I, I was the first person in my family lineage to be raised as wealthy. Uh, my parents were both kind of working middle-class from Detroit and my father um, started to make money and accumulate wealth through the tech industry in the early 90s. And so my entire life, I went to extremely fancy and competitive private schools uh, with the you know, other children of millionaires and billionaires and had, um, uh, had, had a difficult time with the competitive and individualistic nature of those schools. And I think in particular, because my family, you know, my family, we, we are Jewish and my family also has social justice values. And so I think I, I was always um, groomed to be politicized. And then in going to these extremely elite schools, um, the culture and the messages around learning and competition, collaboration, and individualism never really resonated with me culturally with what I was also being taught in my family. Um, and then fast forward to college, I got deeply politicized around white supremacy, came out as queer, got involved in feminist organizing, but nobody wanted to talk about money or class um, in any of the social justice networks that I was connected to. Um, I also got to start making some intimate friendships with working class people at that school and just see a really different way of dealing with money, living with people who were working full-time while they were in school and supporting themselves while I, I didn't have to work and um, I also didn't have any debt. And I admired and was kind of in awe of the resilience and work ethic of my friends um, who were managing to support themselves at um, what to me felt like a young age, but um, because of it wasn't typical for people in my community to be working full-time already at the age of 18. And so then I graduated college debt-free, which already just had me so separate from most of my peers. And I inherited money from my mom's uncle, as you read in my bio, um, unexpectedly um, through, through the forms of these stocks and corporations that I've been actively organizing against in college. Mm. And that was the moment where the fear and shame that I felt around if people were to discover that my family was wealthy um, and discover kind of who, who my family was and what town I was actually from. My fear of being ostracized 
versus my deep embodied concern and, and uh, horror about where my money was invested on an ethical level, it then swung in the direction of needing to do something um, despite it feeling quite scary to start talking about money and start dealing with this inheritance that I had access to. Um, simultaneous to that, my brother, John, um, it's actually his birthday tomorrow, um, who I was extremely close with growing up. And we were also both queer and both artists and just had so much in common, uh, started to die of cancer. And he died when he was only 26. And so of course that was devastating to me and my family, but it was also a piercing awakening for me around the lack of ability that my family had to ask for help, to receive help without paying people for help. And I started to see how incredibly volatile and actually unstable our situation was in a moment where we really just needed love and care and support for my brother who was going through this horrific experience. Um, I felt like we were isolated in this little castle and just far away from everybody. And I know that was painful for him and it was painful for all of us. And it was through that experience that I made the commitment to myself that I would never set up my life to just be reliant upon financial transactions with people that I really wanna have interconnection in my life and community and meaning beyond um, power and status and separation. And so that was really what was the key awakening for me. I won't repeat all the things you shared in the bio, but I will say that um, as a coach, I love that I get the opportunity to support people in similar positions as myself to not just figure out how to make a giving plan and a budget, which of course are so important, but to also give folks the space to rediscover ourselves and recreate our lives truly rooted in our values and truly rooted in our relationships and our care for others um, in a collective liberation framework, which is obviously very different and often at odds with typical financial planning. So it's a very healing experience for me to get to offer that to clients. Mm, okay. There's so much in there, so much in your story, right? Yeah. I don't wanna quickly go into the next thing. So. Anything else about, you know, you, you realizing, I was going to ask you what, what were the money emotions that came up for you? And you, you talked a bit about shame. You mentioned shame mm. was coming up. And so if there's more there, but also, you know, how did you um, work your way through that? You know, was it through learning, you know, doing your own coaching and then going to get that coach training? Where did you take that? And then how did you start to have new and different money conversations. So how did I work through the shame? And yeah, let's start there. Let's okay. start there. Yes. Cool. Let's start there. Yeah. So um, I experienced shame around money since as long as I can remember. One of my earliest memories of money was I went to circus camp for 12 years. Um, it was a very diverse camp socioeconomically and racially. And my best friend at circus camp, I asked her if she would promise me that she would come back to camp the following year. I think I was seven or eight. And she said, I don't know, it depends on if I can get a scholarship. And I was like, what's a scholarship? She looked at me like, how do you not know what a scholarship is? Um, and she's like, I don't know if my family can afford it. And I felt both so sad that she might not be able to come and also deeply ashamed that I didn't know what she was 
talking about and that I was so unaware of the experiences of what most people go through financially. Um, so shame followed me my whole life in connection with money and class. I felt ashamed to have people over to our house. If I imagined that they weren't as wealthy as us, I felt ashamed about that. And then I felt deep shame when I inherited money from my great uncle. Um, how I worked through that was in part through storytelling, right? Through telling my story again and again about the inheritance that came to me, where the money came from, how I was, uh, what I was taught about that inheritance and what I was told to do. But it also came through taking action, right? So there's the storytelling piece. And then there was the doing the things with the money that I felt proud of, such as divesting that money fully from Wall Street after I learned what it was really invested in. I will say that took me like eight years. So that did not just happen overnight um, through giving away half of it to social justice movements um, and through other ways in which I've engaged with that money that I'm proud of. That also supported me to move from shame towards being, being okay with my story. And I think the last piece is also um, practicing separating what I have access to in my bank account um, with my sense of self-worth, right? Which I know is something that you do with clients all the time. Yeah, yeah. Can you say more, say more about that? Say more about that piece because, you know, I'm, you know, in the financial world, so many people say your net worth equals your self-worth. Worth. And mm -hmm. I'm always saying, no, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, please don't say that, you know. Um, and yet, for those of us that have to, you know, create a livelihood and earn money in the world and create an income, um, we have to figure out, you know, what our value is that we bring in our experience and create price points and business models and all of that, you know, yeah. and we're constantly working on our value that way. So what was it like for you? <laughs> yeah. What was it like for you there? Yeah, to disentangle my sense of self-worth with the money I've access to. Well, first of all, I enjoy using the term net wealth instead of net worth as a statement that we are not, you know, we are not what we have access to in the bank account. Um, part of it is through getting to see the goodness and lovability and integrity in people across all class backgrounds and remembering to constantly um, reframe what I'm dealing with on an individual level with the particular economic model that we're dealing with of being in capitalism. We are existing and surviving in an inherently exploitative, um, harmful and racist economy in which some people have much more than they need and others don't have enough to survive. And so the decisions for me around my finances are really can be more action oriented than around my own sense of morality and sense of proving that I'm a good person. And so I think it's a constant daily practice, but part of it is I want to measure how I view myself based on my values and based on my ability to enact those values with my actions, right? To be a person of my word um, and to be a person who's clear about what I'm a stand for. Um, and I think the money comes and goes, right? Uh, you know, as a business owner, some years you make more money than others. Um, some years you need to spend more money than others. Some years I give away much more money uh, than others, but the through line is my values. And the through line is my ability to uphold my values to the best of my ability in any of those moments. And also through seeing um, 
that of course we know hard work does not necessarily translate into becoming wealthy. Um, the system is designed to help wealthy people stay wealthy by not even working, just by having our money invested in the stock market. And so to not make it mean something about my work ethic or the work ethic of others in terms of what we have access to. Yes, yes. So how do you make a decision each year for yourself and how do you help the folks that you work with make a decision on how much money they are going to give? Is it a percentage? Is it organizations? Tell me a little bit about that. Absolutely. So we begin with a baseline. You know, most of my clients have money invested in the stock market. We begin with a baseline around what folks profited in the previous year uh, just through having their money invested, right? Just by doing very little, their money making money, making money off of money. We start as a baseline around asking if folks want to be richer next year or not. And if the intention and the desire is actually, I don't want to become wealthier, the point of this work is for me to begin the process of redistribution, um, especially on this money I did not earn. We begin at roughly that 7% or so of whatever their money made as a baseline. Um, and there's a, a workbook that I take folks through around imagining, you know, if all of your money disappeared tomorrow, what would you do, right? How would you figure that out? and helping folks get connected with their inner resilience and adaptability. We also then explore, if you never gave away any money again, how would that make you feel? And so just kind of getting at how much we benefit by stepping into our values, right? I benefit when I get to support Indigenous-led climate justice organizing. I benefit both by parting ways with money I don't need, but I also benefit from getting to support these beautiful movements that are fighting to keep our water clean to keep our air clean for generations to come. And then from there, it's a matter of also looking at folks' earning and helping people to identify if they want to live off of what they earn uh, and have the ability to save through earned money. I work predominantly with inheritors. Um, and if not coaching people towards developing more financial independence um, from their trust funds and from their inheritance so that they can really have more agency in the decisions that they make around their giving. So I would say most of my clients end up giving away between the seven and 95% range. It varies wildly. And the thing I'm listening for as a coach is for resonance. It's for um, an embodied and clear decision that is not based in scarcity or reactivity. Okay, great, great. So, so much more there. But I know this is a beginning conversation. Sure. <laughs> and I do really want to go through these 10 concepts. Great. Um, that are your values around wealth and class. And I'm, I'll, I'll say what it is. And then I please share more. Like, tell me what Great. this concept means to you. Okay. Because yes. I'm fascinated by this list. Okay. Okay. So number one, wealth accumulation is harmful to all people, including rich people. Yes. So as I shared in my story, um, the reason why I like to highlight the loneliness and isolation and confusion that can come with being raised wealthy is not to create a victim-y nar narrative. It's actually just to indicate how, what we lose, right? The supposed winners of this economic system, those of us who are wealthy, we lose so much. We lose 
connection with the majority of the world. We lose the ability to embody and have the embodied sense of what it's like to rely on other people and to be loved and cherished independent of our status and our material access. So on a spiritual and existential level, I believe that wealthy people do experience harm from capitalism. I would in no way equate it with the types of harm that poor and working class people experience. So it's certainly not to equate those two things, but I think that wealthy people, we have so much skin in the game in terms of transforming capitalism and in terms of creating a more equitable society. And sometimes it takes a little bit of unpacking to really learn and explore the ways that we've been harmed because the narratives around us since day one are about how we're the winners, about how great our lives are, about how wonderful it is to live in these huge houses with a bunch of bonus rooms that we never use. And so I found it takes some time to unearth um, how we struggle with perfectionism, how we struggle with uh, the ability to be vulnerable with others, how we struggle with um, believing that we could actually just belong because of who we are and not because of our wealth. Mm. Yeah, over the years when I've worked with folks from very wealthy families, it's they're consistent in, you know, I grew up thinking I shouldn't have any issues because I have money, but of course I do. Of course I have my own stuff around intimacy and there are so many themes around loneliness or isolation yeah. or hiding, right? Oh, and the secrecy and shame. I mean, so many of us have been told again and again, do not tell people, don't tell people what town you're from. Don't tell people what our salary is. Don't tell people, you know, there's so much secrecy. And with that comes other forms of secrecy um, that then ultimately leave so many of my clients feeling deeply unknown by yeah. even the people that they live with. I have clients whose partners of many, many years have no idea that they're dating someone who's wealthy, um, who they've constantly lied to about the town that they're from. Mm. So, yes, I once worked with someone and one of our final exercises was her creating a ritual where her house was empty because she didn't want any friends or anyone in her activist community or healing community to know <sighs> right, that she had wealth. And so she didn't even buy furniture. You know, she had a few pieces. That was it. So her final party was, it was a part, it was a coming out party. Yeah. Um, she'd already come out as queer, but this was a whole different, a whole different yes. level of coming out. She came out, she bought furniture. She bought a hot tub <laughs> for her home. She had it catered and she had a whole celebration and shared that with her nearest and dearest friends. Yeah. 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 Okay, so this next one, number two, capitalism is inherently oppressive. Mm -hmm. Money is not. Money mm -hmm. is simply a tool. Please yeah. say more about this. Well, you know, especially because I, I have a lot of anti-capitalist clients who um, come to me furious with money, angry at money, furious for all the horrible things that have been done in money's name, which is very understandable. And yet I don't find that to be a useful stance or a useful way to relate to resources because then I see that folks can get into this attitude of, I just want to get rid of it. And then I never want to think about it or deal with it because I don't want blood on my hands. Right? So again, it's understandable why people would come to that, but I like to remind folks money has existed for a very, very long time. 
it can actually be an extremely useful thing to have this symbolic thing I'm going to hand to you to create some type of exchange of goods. That's just actually useful to have a tool like that, um, but to separate it from exploitation, right? And to separate it from what has been done in money's name so that we can have a relationship with money in which we can think clearly about, you know, okay, I have access to a million dollar trust fund instead of hating it and wanting to get rid of it because it represents the enemy. I can now imagine the myriad of ways in which I could put this money to use to build things that I would be excited to see, right? To build and support and fund collective liberation projects, to get to build and support and finance uh, the lives of people that I love and to move it to places that I will feel really proud of. So there's nothing wrong with engaging with money. Um, and it doesn't mean something, again, as we were saying before, bad about you or bad about any of us to turn towards money, to even embrace money. And the other reality is we have to think about money every day. We don't live in a world in which it's possible to exist outside of money. And so we need to move towards money and work through um, whatever charge and emotions are there so that we can think clearly with it as we would with any other resource that we have access to um, while we are actively working to dismantle capitalism. So that's that. Beautifully said. So important to separate those out. Okay. Number three, there's probably no amount of money that will make you feel completely safe forever. Mm -hmm. This one is very disappointing to people. <laughs> so I like to say it early on. I have so many people come to me for consultations and they're just like, cool. So you're going to tell me what that number is, right? By the end of our work, I will have that magical number. Well, I will then know for the rest of my life, you know, I just need X amount of money and I'll give away the rest. And then again, I won't ever have to think about money. So I think part of the chasing of the magical number that I see again and again for clients is for that relief of not having to think about money again because it's painful because of their particular money messages. But the other part of this is that our safety is not about money. Money is one thing in our toolbox that we need to have. We need skills, we need people, we need our own internal ability to manage our emotions and regulate ourselves. We need meaning and purpose and fulfillment right? We need to also live on a planet that is livable. Um, we need to live in an equitable society. And money is just one of many ways that we can uh, work towards creating security and safety in our lives. And what I see with wealthy clients um, is that as we start to redistribute at a level that feels scary, we experience a lot of fear. And it's not necessarily rooted in anything material, but we experience the fear of letting go of, of power and of control. And I think it's okay for us to feel afraid, but to also know that that's not necessarily the measure of reality. If I have a client who has $10 million and is sweating and panicking about giving away 1 million, you and I both know that this person will probably be fine <laughs> financially. We're not going to be worried for them, but I want to create space for us to experience fear and let, and work through it without always believing our fear narratives. And the same being to not chase a feeling of safety and security, because there are all these studies that we can quote around 
you know, uh, these studies around um, folks who have access to tens of millions of dollars who still don't feel safe and they don't feel like they have enough. It's, it's an addictive um, quality. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's so many layers to this, to this one. I mean, it's, it's an inside job. How do you truly find safety from within? That takes a lot of work, as you said, to go yeah. to therapy, learn self-regulation tools, yes. right? Learn how to find safety within that's separate from the dollar amounts or the millions of dollars, right? That are in our bank accounts. Yeah. Yeah. Related to this, one of my favorite books, I don't know if it's a favorite book, but it's a really good storytelling book by Janine Roth is her book, Lost and Found. Okay. And she tells the story how she was saving money from a little girl. Her father taught her to invest from a really young age. And that was how they felt they experienced security and safety, you know, yes. is by, by investing, right. And having their inv investment accounts. And she invested most of her money with Bernie Madoff. And then one oh. day a call that wow. most of it was gone. And so she had to reassess, you know, what true safety meant and what security really meant um, and go to a much deeper spiritual place for her um, of finding out how do you resource safety? You know, exactly. I just, what does that mean? So it's, it's a really good book that's related. And okay. one other thing I'll yeah. add here is that because of class segregation and the dynamic in which we typically run in circles of folks who are in a similar class as us, that can also really distort our sense of enoughness so I really recommend to listeners, um, you know, listeners who are wealthy to also consider if it makes sense for you in your life to get to ask people of different class backgrounds, what amount of money would feel safe to them just for a little perspective. Right. Because for someone else, you know, having $50,000 a year, you yeah. know, that making $75,000. Yeah. Would make them feel really different in their body. Absolutely. Life, right? Being Absolutely. able to meet their basic needs and a little beyond. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Moving on. Number four, relationships are more reliable than money. Yeah. So in the toolbox, the one that I often focus most on is our ability to cultivate and create resilient and long-lasting relationships um, and to really build community. So of course, yeah, relationships can fall apart. I, I do know that that happens. But the point of this is really about our relationships are adaptable with the people in our lives. And the more that we are able to be vulnerable with others, which requires a lot of unlearning for most of us, but in particular, those of us who are raised wealthy, um, and the more that we're able to be with the vulnerabilities of others and to really show up beautifully as friends, as partners, as community members, the more we will actually have support. And so even when it comes to long-term planning and thinking about retirement, the financial planning model is always around the assumption that it will just be you and your partner and that you are your, your full circle of care and that there is no one else who would ever support you. And so I like to help clients reimagine what would that retirement target number be? How would you be thinking about your old age and retirement if you knew that you had a web of connections that would support you if you ever ran out of money and that you would also do the same. You would also support others if they ran out of money. So part of this is about the more we, we broaden our circle of care, 
um, the safer we truly actually are. Um, mm. As we've seen with the volatility of the stock market or investing with Bernie Madoff or whatever, financial accidents or surprises can happen or with COVID, right? So many people um, lost a profound amount of money and lost their livelihood during COVID. What do we then have? We have people hopefully to turn to. And if all we have is money and what we don't have is people, you'll be in a, that's an incredibly volatile situation to be in as my family experienced when my brother was dying. Um, the lack of community that we had around us was actually, um, yeah, very, very harmful and negatively impactful. Okay. Yeah. I, I would love you to share a little bit more about this. Some of the things I'm thinking about is, um, you know, with things, with the changes in our climate there, yeah. I've known so many people who've lost their homes in fires, right? Mm -hmm. And then a GoFundMe has been set up for them, right? Mm -hmm. And to help them, to usher them through. I know so many people who have life, in, I mean, have health insurance or don't have health insurance, you know, yeah. and, and are stuck with so much medical debt or going through a health crisis. And, you know, the community, our communities are needing to step up and step forward yeah. to help each other during these huge challenges. So I've seen it, you know, done in a really beautiful, positive way where someone has given to the community so much when he lost his home in a fire and all his belongings, you know, people stepped up within 48 hours and they went way beyond what he was hoping for, asking for, right? And then other people will ask for something, you know, ask for, put out a GoFundMe and nothing happens, right? So, in the US, you know, you know, with our healthcare system the way it is, you know, so many people are having health crisis and health issues. Yeah, just say more about what you're seeing in community around this. I think, yeah, and with my generation, I'm a millennial, um, we unfortunately, I just, we can plan on having an increasing amount of climate catastrophes. We know that our government can swing right um, quite easily, unfortunately, based on what we've seen in recent years. And I think that there's going to be an immense amount of struggles and tragedies that we will witness personally and collectively. And so part of this is about reshaping how we respond to crises, um, reshaping our concept of just individual well-being and safety into seeing more and more how deeply interconnected we truly are but also around planning for that. So as with the retirement question, what would it look like for you to integrate and bring in funding climate justice work as a part of your retirement plan? That's part of how I, I always at minimum match whatever I contribute towards my retirement to funding climate justice work. And in addition to that, sitting down and having conversations with friends intentionally around how you wanna support each other more meaningfully in the coming volatile, years as we navigate an unprecedented climate crisis. So I believe that this is something we can do. This is a cultural shift that we can make. Obviously, there are communities that already practice this and have always embodied this, but in particular with wealthy people and white wealthy people, I think this is something we need to really intentionally rewire in our minds and humbly learn from others who have already been practicing and embodying 
um, interdependence and care. I think we also have a lot to learn from disability justice movements and the ways in which people have built out community care when there's a lack of government support um, for folks who are experiencing lifelong disabilities as well. Yeah, I would love more resources on that, you know, um, and I would imagine that's happening in the resource generation community. There's, you know, looking at retirement and looking at, you know, how to invest in climate change initiatives and, and social justice initiatives and where, it, where we want to invest in the stock market or not, but also all these community initiatives that I don't, you know, they, they pop up and then I realize, oh, I want to support that one individual person because I know them or there's some women I want to support for the next few years. And I do that more, you know, but are there, I, I know I'm sounding very naive here, but I'm wanting, you know, like just more um, community initiative movements around um, climate issues, like the fires that happen. And, you know, I mean, spreadsheets yeah. pop up and it's like, oh, here are all the people that were affected yeah. by this and here's how you can donate. What am I missing? Like, is there already organizations I that do dig around for resources and I also the way that I want to encourage people to move towards is it's beautiful to support individuals in crisis and to do rapid response giving yes. and I encourage folks to create multi-year giving plans where you are consistently sustaining organizations that are fighting for systemic change work that will ultimately impact millions of people yes. in a really intentional way so it can be a both and, yes. but I, I more steer people towards finding the organizations who are fighting for a world that you would be excited to live in, for a world that would help you feel more secure and perhaps, and doing multi-year support, um, in particular BIPOC-led grassroots organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm happy to dig around for other resources. And I also just think this is something we're figuring out. Um, exactly. and yes. yes, and I know I need it both, you know? I yes. need I, I need to um, be giving to certain people, um, individual folks that I know, and then also um, in, in, in the larger organization way. Okay. So number five, we cannot do this alone. Did we already hit on this or is there more? Well, this is just about why it can be useful to hire a money coach um, because some of us like to try to coach ourselves in our mind and just kind of grit and bear and figure it out on our own, but especially in, in, in the work of unpacking messages around money and around class and belonging and meaning and purpose, um, and also in undoing shame, we need to be witnessed by others. We need to be supported by others. So that's in part why it's useful to hire a money coach. This is also in part why I've started to shift towards doing more group cohort offerings so that not only will I be there, but folks will get to hear the stories of others um, who can they, they can then learn from and relate to and feel less alone in their money story. So in part, this is about coaching. In part, this is also about moving towards doing more money storytelling with other people in your life and recruiting others to also participate in this work of uh, unpacking and relearning our relationship with money and class. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, number six, the goal is not to just feel better. It is to achieve collective well-being. Yeah, you know, I think unfortunately so much of institutional philanthropy and just conventional philanthropy is about just giving away enough of your money that you can feel okay and feel like you did a thing mm -hmm. um, as opposed to like the deep excavation of the soul that we really need to do um, to truly step into redistribution, to engage in reparations work 
and to also just rewire our relationship with money. It's also to say that this work can be painful and hard, as I know that you know, mm-hmm. and that um, we're actually on the right track when someone is starting to feel fear or doubt or shame or insecurity, because these are things that need to come, or grief and devastation. Yes. Um, there's so many things that I get to bear witness to uh, in working with clients around grief and fear and despair and hopelessness. And I like to remind people that you're not always going to feel good during money coaching, right? I know it's cliche, but in the same way that you don't go to the gym to feel good, right? It doesn't always feel feel good good. after. You feel good after, exactly. And um, it's also to get out of this mindset of just doing philanthropy for the sake of relieving ourselves of guilt and instead to do this deeper work around money so that we can enjoy and be delighted by um, giving even at a level that feels scary to us so that we can enjoy and, and be delighted by taking courageous action around money. Um, so that's what this one's about. Yes, got it. Right, right, right. Um, and I always say, you know, it's a gift to have more money, or, you know, or to receive an inheritance. And it also comes with its challenges and it comes with huge responsibility. Yeah. Okay, so number seven, you are not a better or worse person because of your level of access to wealth. Yeah, that's connected with what we were saying before about net wealth and, and self-worth. Um, you know, most wealthy people, and again, white wealthy people in the US in particular, the ways in which our families and our cultures and institutions justify us holding on to so much more money than we need while most people don't have enough to survive is to tell ourselves superiority stories about how hard dad worked and therefore he deserves to have $20 million, um, about how smart we are, about how special we are. I was taught these things every day going to private school about how smart and unique and special I was. And inherent in that message is also around me being better than other people. You know, if I go to an Ivy League school, that means that I'm better than the people who didn't get into those elite schools. If I get all A's, it means I'm better than the people who got C's. If I earn, you know, a quarter of a million dollars a year, it means I'm better than people who don't. So even if the messages weren't so explicit, that was just the air that we were breathing and growing up. And superiority, um, gosh, it's so gross to talk about it, right? But we have to talk about it. Being indoctrinated into superiority is also a deeply um, lonely and dehumanizing experience that again, it makes it hard for us to build meaningful connections with others. And as we said in the, you know, earlier in the podcast, this work is about disentangling our sense of self-worth from power and status and money and finding a way towards being able to love ourselves independent of what we have access to, to love and cherish ourselves and be pleased with ourselves independent of mistakes that we make around money. Um, independent of the things we don't yet understand about money. I know a lot of clients feel, have messages and stories around feeling stupid about money, feeling like it's this mysterious thing we could never understand, especially my clients assigned female. And so when we're able to get out of this better than worse than state of mind, we can then actually get curious about money and we can get curious about ourselves and get curious about our values um, rather than moralistic. And it's unraveling power. Exactly. Yeah. And how we see power and how we're using power over and, you know, how we're continuing to use power in certain 
really awful ways. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Number eight, taking charge of our money is an essential step yeah. for those of us with access to wealth of any amount. So you've hit on this, but say more. So in yeah. particular, this is for inheritors of money. I worked with so many clients who um, come to me who um, have never engaged with their trust fund or their inheritance and have avoided it for many years. They've never touched the money that's in there. And there's a narrative or story of heroicism of if I never engage with this money, it's like, it's not there and therefore I'm a good person, right? Mm-hmm. I also have, a, I would say many of my clients, if not most, have not found a way to earn enough to live off of and save um, and are also reliant on their trust funds. So clients can kind of fall in one of two ways. At the end of the day, I believe it's necessary for all of us to have enough financial literacy um, to understand investments to understand how to budget and how to track our spending, um, to be at choice around our earning and to, if we wanna make the decision to live off of our earned money instead of inherited money, to figure out how to have the tools to do that. Um, it's empowering, it's essential. I want everyone to, to understand money and finance, but then we also need to take agency and responsibility for the money we have access to rather than avoiding it um, and pretending it's not there or just living off of it while also pretending it's not there and not learning about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, re- I mean, really facing it. Yeah. Which exactly. is uncomfortable as is not going to be easy. It's going to be challenging. Yeah. So here's a little side question. What do you say to inheritors that want to make their own money separate from the inheritance and feel that they can't charge or shouldn't charge, that they shouldn't charge Hmm. um, because they're wealthy, you know? What do you say to them? Such a good question. And there's no like one right, you know, one one size fits all answers. I know you know. Yes. But one thing that my colleagues and I talk about is how as wealthy people, if we accept work that's beyond a living, below a living wage, we're then training customers and we're training other people that it's acceptable to underpay people, um, which is then harmful for other workers as well. Mm-hmm. And I like to train clients into respecting the practitioners that they're hiring and to give them not only a dignified pay, but to also show up on time and to respect people's time. And to also, if you really believe in something and you want something to pay money for it. And so I encourage folks to think about and unpack, you know, what is it that is having you want to undercharge and where is that really coming from? Is it from a sense of imposter syndrome or shame? Is it because you strategically want to support working class and poor people to have access to your services? If that's an intentional decision, can we create like a creative sliding scale structure or something in which you can still have folks covering those costs so that your your offering can be accessible. Um, But I would get really curious about what's coming up for that person that feels like they can't charge more. And I think it depends on, yeah, the the intentionality of where that's really coming from. But I believe everybody has a right to earn um, a livable wage and a livable income for the area that you live in. And I like to support people to move in that direction because I always see that it then yields more confidence and more self-trust that people can really figure it out. And then they have more freedom to redistribute their inheritance. Wonderful. Thank you. 
Number nine, there's no perfect solution. There's an abundance of wonderfully imperfect ones. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just, I know my clients and I know that pretty much 100% of us struggle with perfectionism because of white supremacy and because of class conditioning. And I see a lot of folks get stuck and frozen because they're waiting until they find this perfect organization to give to, or they're waiting until they have everything figured out before they take action. Um, so many of us are terrified of making mistakes or doing the wrong thing. And then when we have a political analysis around harm and power, it just gets even more intense because we're afraid of uh, making a racist mistake. We're afraid of making a classist mistake. So while that's well-intended, it then inhibits people from taking action. And the truth is that unravel uh, unraveling white supremacy and capitalism is messy and difficult. And all of us will make mistakes. And those are often our best learning moments, even if they are embarrassing or uncomfortable. And so I don't want people to wait for the perfect solution. I'd like to support them to be courageous now and to try things out um, when it comes to moving money back into the world. Mm. Number 10, we have so much to gain from aligning money with our values. Yes. Uh, this one makes me happy because, um, I just picture all of the smiling faces that people have gotten to work with when I see that they hit that moment of deep contentment, um, because of the, the work that they've done to align their money with their values, right. Of finally cutting that check to this organization that they've been deliberating about for months and sweating over and getting scared about giving such a big, you know, gift to, um, having moved through incredibly difficult confronting conversations with their parents and partners about money, um, taking the step to contact their financial advisor to finally divest from these corporations that made them feel ill to be invested in. Um, there's always that moment where I finally get to see that smile, that sense of relief, and that sense of deep inner satisfaction that comes from just doing the right thing rather than avoiding and just finally doing the right thing and getting to appreciate um, the privilege of having the time and space and, and courage and resources to move towards values alignment. Um, and I also say this because it works against the narrative that, you know, the wealthier you are, the more you have to fall, right? The more you have to lose. But I don't see redistribution and reparations as a losing game. Um, and I don't see the work of moving towards perhaps a more humble values aligned lifestyle and and life as a losing game um so yeah, yeah so it, share your definition and how you see reparations and you're using a different word than redistributing are you are you using separating the two redistribution yeah. and reparations yes yeah so reparations is about repairing of harm so um and i'm using it in particular through the lens of race so I help clients to look back at their money stories and look at where the wealth was accumulated because whenever there's wealth accumulation, it means that there's extraction, means that the wealth was taken from communities. And so be it if I'm working with clients who come from oil and logging families or who are descendants more explicitly of slave owners, which I often have as well, be it that I'm working with clients who are descendants of settlers on indigenous land. I mean, I'm a settler on indigenous land, um, but folks who were able to 
connect their lineage with people who um, were one of the earlier settlers and that's connected with their money story. You know, I think any white person in this country has a responsibility towards reparations, regardless of our class backgrounds. But when we're looking at wealth accumulation, I help clients explore and unpack which communities was your money taken from and in what ways can we return money to those communities. Um, so it's often in supporting Black and Indigenous-led organizations in the United States. It's often in funding and supporting reparations policy and frameworks. Um, I love the Movement for Black Lives um, definition and, and toolbox around reparations. I highly recommend folks check that out. And it's also, again, about storytelling, right? So we can't fully heal until we address the harm that's been caused. So I do encourage clients to um, practice sharing the story around the harm that our lineages and our ancestors, or perhaps ourselves, have caused in terms of theft of land and labor and resources so that we can also contribute towards a more healing framework. And redistrib redistribution. Yes. Yes. When I say redistribution, I'm talking about giving. Um, I just, I, I prefer the term redistribution because um, it feels a little bit more connected to justice. And it's also, whereas I think giving um, has an association of, of generosity and of, um, you know, I'm, I'm optionally deciding to just give to you because I'm generous and I want to, but redistribution is also about um, not just the movement of, of money outward and, and um, unlocking resources and sharing it, but it's also with supporting, in my mind, organizations who are fighting for redistribution of power in different ways. So kind of that twofold sense. Iris, thank you so much for sharing your experience and wisdom and the work that you are doing in the world. Please share two last things. One, how mm -hmm. folks can find you. And two, any other parting thoughts that you want to share with us? Great. Um, folks, can be. you're welcome to contact me through my website, www.irisbrilliant.com. I do private coaching and I do group coaching for and the group coaching is specifically for women, non-binary and trans folks. Private coaching and couples coaching is for anybody. Um, my parting words are, let me think for a moment about what I wanna close on. I think for, for those who are listening, who do have access to wealth, I encourage you to take a moment of reflecting on one thing you appreciate about what this wealth has allowed you to do in your life and one action step that you might be willing to take to move towards aligning that money with your values. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Barry. Hi again. Thank you so much for joining me today. What you heard here is a delicious sample of the loving guidance, heartful inspiration, and practical tools you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. I hope you found something here to take with you, a lesson, some inspiration, or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your own money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, please pack your financial goals, soul deep aspirations and grab your favorite person. 
You can find out more at barrytesler.com.